Welcome to On Living, the Trauma and Beauty of Being Human with Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Have you ever asked yourself what it means to be human? What does it mean to be fully alive? What does it take to love, to really connect with another human being? How do we fully engage with and honor the humanity in us? It's time to really talk, listen to, and connect with one another. Come join in the conversation with your host, Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Good morning, dear everyone. Welcome to Voice America. Most especially welcome to my show, to my little offering of connection. And I always hope each week my offering of of reflection on what makes us human, on how we can be human better, more fully, more responsibly. You know, I keep harping on this thing of being human as an important effort for all of us, um, an effort that needs commitment and support because I view it as an essential project, essential to our being, to our survival, and, and essential because it is a very difficult project. Look around you every day, look closely, listen carefully to fellow human beings around you, and you can see how much we fail at this business of being human to ourselves, towards each other, how we fail so badly lately at being kind to one another, at stepping into the generosity and the tenderness that we should all be capable of towards one another. So every day I am confirmed in my desire to offer this hour, you know, my my little hobby project as as a small space where I can remind you of the need to pay attention to our humanity, where I can offer you some small urging, some small opening to reflect on your own ambition and longing for something better of your humanity, to give you the reasons to recognize and to step away from hate and fear and destructiveness towards, hopefully, um, your capacity for tenderness and kindness and generosity and courage and beauty in living. Today is October 4th, 2018. Here in the U.S., we are four weeks away from the midterm election. Many people say that this is the most important midterm election ever. The fate of the country is in the works. This country is split in half. The Senate is split. So is the Supreme Court right down the middle. Right, left, red, blue, openness or hatefulness, America first or America for everyone, man or woman, he said or she said, black and brown or white. It is shaping up to be a historic election season because of what is in the balance. It is also a historic reason because of the record number of women who are running for office and a record number of women of color doing so. Do you know that in this country, of 50 United States, 11 states have no woman representing them at all, and 33 states out of 50 have no women of color in their congressional delegations? Do you know that? And 30 states have never sent a woman of color to Congress, ever, and we're in the 21st century. I want to give you a little bit more of of statistics to impress the point. Of currently, of all the candidates to the House of Representatives, women and men combined, Democrats and Republicans combined, white women make up 
14%. Women of color of all races combined make up 9.5%. And of that, let me break it down. Black women candidates make up 4%. Latinas make up a wee bit under that, hovering around 4 but not quite. Asian women make up a little bit under 2%. 2%. As I said, there is cause for celebration this year because the numbers may be ticking upward. More women are running, more women of color are running. Among women who have filed for a candidacy for the House, women of color make up 34% running. You know, This is on par with the share of the general female population at large in the country, which is 37%. So it is quite encouraging. What drives them, I wonder, you know, what makes someone, a woman of color who, frankly, in this racist, sexist country, a woman of color is a de facto second-rate citizen at worst, and invisible and tolerated at best. What would make a woman of color wake up one day and say, I'm going to run for office. I have something to say, and I want to say it. I want to do something for this country, and I have faith in what I have to say. I have faith that people will listen, that I'm going to walk the streets in my neighborhood for 10, 15 hours a day, every day of the week for a whole freaking year to tell people about it. <laughs> what drives these people, you know? Anyway, so what is at stake for this midterm election is for us to see the fate of these women's message, to see how the country responds to their purpose whether we accept their proposal and recognize ourselves in their desire and passion and dedication or not. So for me, this, this upcoming election is important because of what it will tell me about how this country tends to its wound, because this is a wounded country. And all of you who have listened to me for a few months know about my interest in the business of how one tends to one's wounding. You all know my fondness for the saying by the poet and prophet Rumi, who said that the wound is where the light enters. I have been stressing again and again that we're all wounded, that life is wounding. It is inevitable. And what makes us human distinct from animals is how we respond to the woundings of life. What makes our humanity, what distinguishes us from one another is how we let the light enter through the wounds that we are dealt in life. Everyone is wounded by life at one point or another. Don't look for the wounds to determine the life or the worth of a person. Look at how, at whether he or she has let the light enter. Christine Blasey Ford, for example, has been wounded. Look at how she inhabits her wound and becomes a person. Brett Kavanaugh is sustaining a deep wounding right now. Look at how he meets his wounding. Look at the humanity that each of these people demonstrate. Look at what they have to offer to the world of their wounded humanity and decide on their worth. So I look at the results. I will look at the results of the upcoming election in, in a month to see what kind of light we as a country choose to let enter into our wounded collective consciousness. I don't think that we will ever have universal health care in this country, frankly. We will never be able to solve the immigration problem in this country ever, not as long as we pose it as a problem. <laughs> and it looks like we will always pose it as a problem. We will never eradicate racism. 
we will not have economic equality or gender equality, not as long as there is fear and hate and deference to the religion of money. But how we engage with each other around these wounds, how we let these wounds touch us, shape us, what we choose to become in reaction to, in response to these ills and wounds, that says something about our strength and our humanity. And in that regard, who we choose to listen to, who we choose to hate, who we choose to represent us, say something about our hopes and longings, about our humanity. And that is what I will be watching for in November. My guest today has chosen to dedicate her life to caring for others. As a doctor, as an advocate, and as an activist, she chose to run for office last year, well before the big wave you know, of, of women candidates that you see celebrated now in the press. Well before that, this lady temporarily left her uh, medical practice and went out to run for office. Um, when I first heard about her candidacy in California, um, I reside in New York. You know, when I heard about this, this Vietnamese woman who has never held an elected office <laughs> running for Congress as a Democrat in Republican Orange County, I thought, well, she either needs medications for this very expensive midlife crisis <laughs> or she needs a lot of money. So all I did was send money. I didn't reach out to her because, you know, we Vietnamese people, we don't do that. Um, but then at the end of, of, of her run, uh, when she sent out a letter to her supporters after she lost in the Democratic primaries, I, I was so grabbed uh, by what she revealed uh, of her experience um, of the campaign, by what she chose to share of her hopes and gratitude and heartbreaks uh, during that season. So it was then that I reached out because I thought, you know, here was an engaged, fully alive human being. I want to know her. And I want you to know a little bit of her also. So that's why I invited her here today. My, my guest today is uh, Dr. Mai Khan. You know, among Vietnamese people, we only refer to each other by our first name um, because, you know, we... Uh, the last name is very common uh, in our culture. We only have three or four last names. We all come from three or four dynastic lines. Um, so the, the, the family name really doesn't say much about uh, who we are. Um, and we also say the family name first and then uh, and then the first name second. And then we say it f fully among ourselves, you know, with the tonality and the musicality. Of, of our homeland uh, with the colors and accents that we leave out when we enter the Anglophone white world. So um, let me introduce us to you. I am the host of today's hour. <laughs> my name is Nguyen Lian, and my guest today is uh, Dr. Zhang Maikan. Welcome. Good morning. Are you? Good morning, Lian. Good morning. <laughs> Thank Good morning, you so much for, I, I've been sitting here listening to your words, and I'm just, uh, I am touched, and I'm inspired by the last 10 minutes of what you've been saying, and, I, and I'm so um, thankful and, and so honored that, uh, that you're allowing me to have this conversation with you, um, you know, this morning, so yeah, I'm really excited. Okay. 
You know, I um, you sent me an email last night uh, about um, some Boston march that your sister and her daughter are marching in. And then you said, uh, I'm not much of a speaker, you know, so please don't have too much expectations about tomorrow. And I thought... She gave she 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 gave speeches and she went to rallies speaking to thousands of people earlier this year. So what do you mean you're not much of a speaker? <laughs> but anyway, don't don't answer that. <laughs> My, what I want to know is this is the history. You know, I want to tell the listeners when I reached out to you. You know, to tell you about the show and my desire to talk to you and, and to have you share yourself with us. There was a long silence. There were there were a few months, you know, when you didn't respond. And then finally you did. And you explained to me coming out of the, the primaries that, that you were just feeling so heartbroken that you needed time. And then you said yes to, to my invitation. And I am so curious, you know, about why you say yes to, uh, to to this invitation in, in a deep way because uh, you went through a lot last year. You gave so much of yourself last year. So what remains? What is it that you still want to say, to share? Well, Leanne, I, I, as a doctor and as a mother to a five-year-old, you know, for me, running for Congress was such an, it was such a difficult ordeal for me and my family. I mean, I took pretty much a whole year to, to campaign, um, but I continue to work, right? I continue to work to the very, um, to the very last day of, of the, um, the election, uh, and I worked as a, a pediatrician, right? I, I mm-hmm. battled through one of the worst flu seasons last year, and I continue to, 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 to see patients every day. Um, so... After the election, you know, I felt like, God, I've, I've given my all, I've given my family's all, and we still couldn't get a message out. We couldn't reach the voters to really, and the message that I just wanted to get out there was, look, we got to bring some compassion into public service. Um, mm-hmm. I, I avoided the word politics, but really it's about serving the, the public, the community, and I wanted to bring more kindness and compassion back into it. And for some reason, that message didn't resonate with uh, at least, you know, the voters in this area. So that mm-hmm. kind of gave me a little bit of a, a pause in my heart. And then mm-hmm. it wasn't even maybe a few weeks later that um, it came out that there was this, this policy the, the, by the current administration of separating minors from asylum seekers. Mm-hmm. And Leanne... As a, as a mother and as a pediatrician um, and as, as a child refugee who was separated from my parents during our escape from Vietnam in 1975, all of these experiences I, I, I had as a child really came back and it just made me, I was paralyzed. I mean, I, I used the mm. term uh, paralysis because I was just paralyzed by the pain. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, mm-hmm. you know what? we got to get out of our paralysis, though. And so I went to um, one of the largest rallies here in Orange County, and I spoke. You know, I brought mm-hmm. my stethoscope, I brought my white coat, and I brought my <laughs> five-year-old daughter. And uh-huh. I stood on a truck, and I talked to about, I would say, 10,000 people about mm-hmm. just not, you know, not about any political leaning or any ideology, but just my experience and how just how we have to speak up against this 
this attack on humanity. This, this, mm-hmm. this, and we're all parents. We're all, we're all people ultimately, and we we know how painful it is to separate children from from their parents. Now, mm-hmm. so we got to speak up against that. And that's when I said, you know what, I'm just going to have to get up and get back out there and, and continue um, to relay this message that, that we have to, to bring compassion and kindness to everything that we do, particularly in, you know, the current environment that we're living in. Yeah. You know, when I was speaking to another friend of mine who is a human rights activist, and I was asking her uh, in her 30 years of work, what was the most, um, the biggest obstacle, you know, to her work? And she said indifference, you know, not hate, uh, not lack of resources, not politics, but indifference. So in a way, you are speaking to that, urging people, you know, your campaign was about urging people away from indifference and towards something, something more. But it tells me that you remember what it was like for you as a child to be wounded, right? You have not turned away from it. You have not numbed it out. That's why you still want to act. That's why you were affected and paralyzed by the experience of these children at the border. Um, what's your? What was your sense of how people received your message? Where were they touched or not? You know, Leanne, I, 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 I'm going to say that people were, were touched by my stories, and, and I, you know, and as I was walking those homes, I walked so many homes, and I made so <laughs> many phone calls, um, and I think the people, you know, when they heard this story, my life story, they, they were definitely moved by it, but I'm not sure that they then made the connect that, that you can have somebody who experienced this and now have benefited from it and now is someone who's hoping to then maybe share that, um, that, that opportunity, that privilege um, mm-hmm. with more of us. You know, I'm, I'm not sure that, that people made the connect between the story and the need for us to, to continue to, to, to serve others and make sure mm-hmm. that others have the same opportunities and the same um, uh yeah, the same opportunity. I, I'm not mm-hmm. sure, Lynn, and, and I was hoping that by putting myself out there and, and telling them stories, that um, that I would, you know, that I would get people to to move out of their own paralysis. If you right, know right, yeah, yeah. I think people don't connect it with their own story, with what it's like for them, for example, to be children, you know, or to to be terrified or to hurt. Um, that's what I mean when I said that you remember those of us, I think people who act, who hurt, it's because they still remember, they still live in that, let themselves live in that place. And that's what allows for the compassion, the, the feeling with another person, because you let yourself still know about what, what hurts in you, what moves in you, you know? And, and I think that that's, um, and actually I, I want to ask you more about it when we come back from the break, you know, about the, about how people are willing to so turn away, you know, not from other people's hurts, but from their own. And I want to ask you about that, you know, from your experience of that throughout your, your, your work and your life. But I need to break now for a couple of short minutes, hopefully, and we'll be right back. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world, across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Every day, we're surrounded by technical buzzwords and jargon that can go way over our heads. Now, there's a show that brings it all back down to earth. Tune in for today, Tomorrow's Technologies, with host Jose Negron. We'll not only explain the new technologies that are shaping our world, we'll give you the benefits and backstory of these technologies. Listen for T3 with Jose Negron, live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Hello, everyone. Welcome back uh, to the show. During uh, before the break, you know, I threw out the question uh, to Mike Han about, uh, you know, why does she thinks that uh, does she think that people turn away, you know, from her message of, of urging towards more compassion? Why do people turn away, you know, from other people's hurts? And 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 I put in my two cents about from their own hurts. And um, and Mike Han said that she's still puzzled about, you know, why people really keep hurting themselves by voting against their own interest uh, you know well that's a big sociological question and I just have my own very uh, particular view on it from see from being you know sitting with people one-on-one again and again people who have been very wounded and my view is that in order to take action uh, you know and and to feel for others and also to feel for yourselves and take action to tend to your wounds you need to be able to let yourself feel 
the wound. You need to be able to acknowledge it. You need to be able to mourn the thing that you have lost. You need able to be to be able to to, to be in touch with, with with being human. And if you turn away from it, and people who have been so hurt would turn away from it, would numb themselves to it as a way of, of keeping themselves together, you know, and they take flight into this 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 grandiosity, uh, this fantasy of being invulnerable and grandiose, you know, that they can also be a, a millionaire if they would just work hard and pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and all that crap. Um, and, you know, denying the hurt as a way to feel strong. That's that's my <laughs> that, that's my explanation. But let's go back to Maikan here. Maikan, you keep referring to your story so I think that maybe you know I, I want to press you on that you've told the story many times over but um, uh, I have people you know from overseas and Ireland and Australia and so on and so forth who have never heard of you uh, the story our story at, as Vietnamese immigrants you know is very common we all without having to say recognize it in one another but other people may not know so you refer to uh, 1975 um, and you were, what, nine or ten or something? I was nine, Leanne. Uh, I was nine. And, uh-huh. and let me tell you my story, because, you know, when you ask about why, you know, people turn away from their hurt and why they don't um, really um, look at their humanity and, and, and think about their life experience and how that connects them with other people, right? Sometimes the pain they feel... Uh, puts them in a cocoon and kind of separate them from uh, other people and their sense of, of total humanity. Well, I was like, you know what? I, can't, I don't have a good answer for that. You're the psychologist. You're the expert. You tell me. But I can tell you my story. And, and I think that just through what I've lived and what I've tried to do since uh, my experience um, will tell you a lot about how I think people, even if they don't think about it, if they don't um, examine it, they sometimes will just live it, and it, through the, the, their actions and through the, the life choices, um, it speaks a lot about whether they've dealt with their pain uh, mm-hmm. or they have ignored them, right? So my mm-hmm. way of dealing with my pain isn't that uh, I'm going to think about uh, what I need to do. I just do them, and then, then I reassess later. Um, so mm-hmm. in 1975, um, my uh, during during the final days of, of Saigon, where there was all the chaos of, of uh, a capital that that basically being um, uh, under I guess siege, um, my parents went to an orphanage and uh, and gave us to the nuns and sisters there. So I remember um, during just you know uh, this beautiful sunny day in Saigon, and my parents were wearing sunglasses inside the church. Mm-hmm. And to a nine-year-old, all could, I could think of is, you know, my dad was a, a very proud and proper judge in Vietnam, why he would be leaving his sunglasses on. Mm-hmm. And as they were walking away, leaving us there, I saw tears out of the corner under the, the glasses. Mm-hmm. And that's all mm-hmm. I could remember from my experience as a nine-year-old. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. stayed with me. I mean, that image is so vivid to today. Because mm-hmm. then we were taken on the plane. We were then taken off the plane. By, by the way, by, by way, it was it was you and and your younger siblings. Right, right. So we had, okay. um, you know, my my sister was four years old, and my brother was six, and so there were just four of us, um, ten and less, and uh, 
you know, we were then taken on this plane, and we went across um, the, the Pacific without our parents. I mean, and we've never been away from our parents or on a flight ever. Mm-hmm. And so then when we landed in San Francisco, I remember being carried off because we were part of this, this airlift for orphans and handicapped children. So the Marines mm-hmm. came up and, and basically carried us down the plane. Mm-hmm. And I, as we were being carried down, I remember thinking, oh, my God, this Marine, this soldier just is my savior. I, I literally looked at him and I thought, oh, my God, he is my savior. Because mm-hmm. it was the worst, most traumatic, painful flight I've ever been on. Mm-hmm. And you did not speak and, and, English, just, just, just you know, to no. state the obvious. All the sounds no. were unfamiliar. Yeah. Did your parents oh tell God. you what was going on? No, no. Um, we had no idea. I, mean, I seriously, had, it was just a sunny, beautiful day in Saigon, and we went to church. Mm. That's, all, that, that's all that we were prepared for. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was mm-hmm. just so traumatic, this sudden... This, this sudden separation. And mm-hmm. then when we landed in the U.S., we were actually then processed in, um, in now what they would call a detention center. So we were at uh, this huge detention center where they basically, oh, my God, we went through a delousing process. I remember mm-hmm. they sprayed us down, mm-hmm. and then they gave us new clothes. They gave us food. Um, but every night, I remember, at this detention center, you could hear cries. I remember hearing cries in the middle of the night. And I remember mm-hmm. one of the biggest fear, and I mentioned that to you um, last night in my email, my biggest fear at that time was that my little sister would be separated from us. Because I was just like, how are we going to ever find her? How is she ever going to be reconnected? We didn't know the language. We didn't know. I mean, we, mm-hmm. so that was such a big fear to me. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. when I heard about the separation of, of children from their their parents when they're seeking asylum now, gosh, that whole floodgate of pain came back, Leanne. Mm-hmm. It was just something that stayed with me. And to a nine-year-old, that was just the most painful and scary uh, experience. Um, you were the oldest? Anyway, so I was the second from the oldest. My oldest sister is 10, and I was mm-hmm. nine, um, mm-hmm. and down the line. Um mm-hmm. So then we, but then we got fostered out together, thankfully, to a farming uh, family in Oregon, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's when I could experience my first, you know, work. I mean, we we pick berries in the field. We, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we join other uh, migrant families picking berries every summer, and we did that basically through. I did that through elementary school and, and high school, but you know, that to me is such a. Uh, a typical refugee experience because I, I talk to a lot of my uh, friends who are Vietnamese uh, refugees too, and that's what we did. I mean, we we picked berries, we picked tobacco, we picked pretty much anything um, that was was available for us to get you know to do. And then my dad, who so my parents eventually escaped. Uh, and uh, how many years were you separated from them? A year. We were separated uh-huh. a year, and mm-hmm. then my parents came. And, uh, and, and uh, I tell you, my dad worked as a janitor when he first came mm-hmm. over. And to mm-hmm. me, that was another thing that reminded me of how, um, how immigrants and how, how parents just have to do whatever they do to you know, get their kids fed and taken care of. But, you know, right. it's interesting. My dad was a judge in Vietnam, 
so the the agency thought that it was just such a perfect match that they would put um, him at a courthouse. So he was a janitor at a courthouse. Um, <laughs> and and my, my uncle, who was a doctor at the time, he became an orderly at the hospital. I mean, this uh-huh. is my experience when we first came over to, you know, in 1975. Um, uh-huh. But so anyway, my dad worked as a janitor, uh, but he really encouraged us to, to study, which, you know, we all, all of us immigrants um, try to do. And, uh, and so when I got into Harvard, I, I ended up working as a janitor through, um, through, through school. Through undergrad. And I, uh-huh. I, yeah, right, through undergrad. Right, right. But, I, you know, as I was listening to um, the current... Um, the current uh, judicial, uh, uh, you know, review, uh, all of these mm-hmm. uh, discussions, right? I remember I, I had the job of cleaning one of the jock houses at Harvard. Mm-hmm. And I tell you, when you <laughs> what did you find? There, what do you remember? A lot of beer bombs? <laughs> the bathrooms were, I mean, you would wade through a puke, I mean, vomitous. I mean, it was, I mean, the, the jock rooms are the dirtiest in the whole whole college. I mean, you would, I would wade up to knee deep. Oh, with my God. <laughs> crap. No, but I remember also getting some good loot, though. I mean, like, you know, they would throw out things like perfectly um, workable, uh, you know, uh, uh, radio set, lamps. So I was able to get some and, and furnish my, my, um, my dorm room with that. But I remember how the jocks dorms were just the hardest to clean because they were the dirtiest. <laughs> so anyway, that, that was... <laughs> so it, it was but they work hard. They work hard, as Brett said. <laughs> they work hard. I'm sure they do. Because, you know, and I'm sure that's why they, you know, but mm-hmm. they party hard too. And um, yeah. definitely I saw that. You know, you, you were referring to a very common immigrant trajectory, you know, of, of uh, starting out in your homeland, you know, relatively with some position, with some stature, and then really being, uh, suffering a, a lot of loss and having to build yourself up and going through humiliations and hard work and so on. My father was a marine biologist at home uh, and a PhD and in Paris, you know, he had to empty out, he has to work as, as a night guard, you know, and empty out chamber pot. Um, for rich uh-huh. people. So it's, it's, it's very common uh, all, all over. But my question is this. When you were running, for example, a lot of your, um, Orange County has a lot of immigrants, right? Is it your experience uh-huh. that immigrants can be the most conservative, judgmental group of people towards fellow immigrants? It's almost as oh, if we, we don't remember or don't want to acknowledge, you know, the the work that it takes, the vulnerability, the needs, the interdependency that it would take, you know, to bring an immigrant, to bring you to the point where you are. Was that, did you encounter that during your campaigning with, with fellow immigrants? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I live in a district where... Uh, it's about, we have about 30% Asian and 30% of the population Hispanic. Right? So we have the, the district in Orange County where the, you know, the, basically the minority is the majority. Uh, and yet, over and over as I walk and as I talk to people, they kept saying, but, but 
we we did it all ourselves. We we came over here. We built our business. We built our uh, and and we, you know we're doing all of this without anybody's help. Mm-hmm. And I I I couldn't understand that because I looked at them and I said, my gosh, you've forgotten how forty years ago that just my letting you into this country and accepting you and giving you even if it's just jobs that that weren't at your level. These were given to you, and it's not mm-hmm. that, um, you know, it, it was done out of just generosity and kindness of, of total strangers, and mm-hmm. to deny that and to think that then somehow now, you know, you, you, you won't at least share that opportunity with others because mm-hmm. of your own fear, your own fear mm-hmm. of, of the same, maybe the same a collapse uh, to your um, economic uh, status or your your family. So you know, definitely immigrants. I think were the, the strongest in in their responses about making sure that the border is safe, that you know mm-hmm. security is is there, and that you know we don't allow people who come in maybe not in a legal way, in the in the same way that mm-hmm. we were given, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's where you know they keep they keep the 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 refugees, at least in, in this area, in Orange County, made a distinction between how they came into this country, how legal it was, and mm-hmm. also they now want to make sure that it stays um, safe and that somehow immigrants make this community unsafe. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's really, it's a sad statement because these come from the very people who know exactly how you know, how, how immigrants work harder. We also commit less crime. And, uh, you know, so, uh, I, yeah, it, it's yeah. still to me very puzzling. But mm-hmm. definitely that's yeah. experience I saw when I was out there. Yeah. And what about, do you, what, what response did you get from people uh, when they opened the door and, and, and found a woman? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> most of them. Well, you know, okay, I'll, I'll tell you, most the, the most people were very surprised that there was actually even a candidate walking. I mean, honestly, most of them were saying, my goodness, we haven't seen a candidate by ever. We've never seen our representatives by, but we've never seen a candidate either. Usually they're staff or they're walkers or they're volunteers. And, uh, and so that was the first surprise. And then the second surprise is, oh, and, and she's just a simple, plain-looking woman. Um, I think that was the, the second thing because most of them said, oh my gosh, you, you know, you look just like, you look like a mother in a pediatrician. You don't look like a politician. And, um, and, and I, I, there were definitely, uh, surprises. Um, yeah, yeah. but you know, most it reminds of the time, me a, again of, of how, how disconnected or dissociated we are from, from civic work, from the political process. We forget that it's, it's done by real people and for real people. It's it's become like this this circus, this show, you know, that's over there in Washington or done by people with money and men with money mostly. It has nothing to do with with real people, you know, by real people as well. Yeah. And I think the, the voting public the, the, the are kind of numb to that whole you know, that whole image. And I think that they've accepted that image uh, of, of basically power in the hands of, of the established um, the, the establishment, and I think they're kind of numb to it. 
So, in a way, that's I, I think why they don't go and vote. That's why voters' turnout has been so low. Is that they they have now become indifferent, and that mm-hmm. to me was so scary because. I didn't know why people are indifferent until I started walking and then I realized that it's because, you know, when they see a candidate knocking on their door who, who looks different, who acts different, they, they're surprised. They're, they're, mm-hmm. and, and not only are they surprised, they realize that they have had no engagement and no interest in engaging in, uh, in, in voting because mm-hmm. that, you know, they, they have accepted and more maybe just resigned to the idea that that's, that's why what what, um, yeah. what public service is all about. But, yeah. you know, I, I think that it still requires that, and that's, that's why, and I'm still out there talking, and, and you know, uh, it, 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 we just need to keep on doing this. And then, so, as I talk to, to the people that I knocked on the door, I tell them, I, I tell them stories. I tell them the reason why I'm running. You know, I said, look, I'm running because of two little girls, hey, and maybe that appropriate because I'm a pediatrician, I'm a mother, but let me tell you about these two little girls. I talked about my my five-year-old patient who... Mike, hold on a minute. Hold off on that. I I don't want to to rush you through that story, but let me just take this break and then, you know, hold on to that and then tell us when we come back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world, across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to On Living. 
To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Um, Mikan, before we broke um, for the commercial thing, you were beginning the story of why you uh, you were running. Uh, so you, what, what about these two little girls? Tell me. All right. So the, the day after the election, Leanne, I came into the office. And you I mean the uh, Donald Trump election? 2016 election. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. After the the. After November, I think, 8th or 9th, um, I came into the office, and um, I was in tears. I was devastated by the outcome. Uh, But one of the first patients I saw that day was a five-year-old girl um, with a brain tumor. Now, her mom is is a um, nail shop worker here in Orange County, and so they had finally gotten health insurance. And, you know, a lot of the small businesses... um, or just, you know, people who, who do jobs that uh, aren't, uh, that don't have health insurance, you know, they were actually able to finally get some insurance. And so this, this girl, I was seeing her after her um, surgery, her brain surgery, and her mom and I just, like, we totally broke down. We cried. I hugged her. And we just held each other for a long time. And, and I don't know if it's because, you know, look, I had breast cancer twice. And so I know how difficult having this type of disease or this, uh, on a family. Um, but also, you know, she's five-year-old. She's the same age as my daughter. Mm-hmm. And so just as a mother and as a doctor uh, and as, as somebody who's sitting there across another mother uh, with a daughter with a, a devastating illness, mm-hmm. we just could not believe that the beatings that our children and our families and our women are taking from, from, from this 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 world right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so You're talking about, about she was able to get health care through the Obama Affordable Care Act. and that Through the Affordable you, Care Act. Right. Yes. And her daughter, you and, know, if that's repealed, her daughter would not be able to get treatment. Right. Right. So mm-hmm. we were just at that time, even before all of the attempt to do that in Congress, right, this was just from all of the campaign messaging. And so even to this mother who was probably not really paid too much attention to politics, realize that things are going to change for her and her family mm-hmm, going forward. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and that's when, and so when the, when the attempt to repeal the Affordable Care Act came into Congress, um, I said, gosh, we got to do something. And, you mm-hmm. know, that, that attempt to repeal passed by only four votes. Mm-hmm, so I mm-hmm. thought if we can just somehow get more of our representatives up there, just even if we can just get two votes or two seats flipped, that we could actually keep some of these decisions being um, being made and these these attempts, so we can stop them. So mm-hmm. that's when I decided, Leanne, to run for Congress. As mm-hmm. a working mom, as a working doctor who's never done politics before, but look, I've done community work before. I, I've served, you know, I, I've built communities uh, in terms of, of advocating for them. Um, so I know what it's like to really serve the community and work your heart out for them. I didn't know anything about the political um, process, the structure. 
And I thought, well, maybe we need people who don't understand the current political structure and don't accept it. And we need to have those of us who work in the community um, in there because mm-hmm. we need a change. And we need a change not the way that, you know, that they think it's going to happen. We're not going to be mm-hmm. changing it by the same, putting the same established people in there, even if they say mm-hmm. they're totally different. Yeah. Just thinking about it, I'm thinking about the numbers, as you mentioned. If two seats, that's all you need. Two people who would be elected. And that makes a difference of probably hundreds of thousands of babies being saved or not. Two people that we need to send, right? Two people (laughs) in exchange for a policy that could affect hundreds of of, of, tens of of hundreds of thousands of, 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 of children. So it's just like, you Absolutely. know, the, the proportion is enormous to me. Yeah. Um, well, and that's, that's why I, you know, I thought, okay, I've been a pediatrician, so I, I help my patients and their families uh, on a, you know, on a personal day-to-day basis. But if I just, God, take this step, which was very difficult, but um, to just maybe run for Congress, flip a seat, then we can actually help a lot more patients, a lot more children. And, and all the women and the mothers out there. And, and that's kind of what I, I wanted, you know, my story as a, a breast cancer survivor, as a mother, as a pediatrician, as an immigrant, to have that story be kind of the story for all of us. Because really, I, I mean, that is a story that we hear from mothers and, and yeah. patients. And, you know, so mm-hmm. uh, that, mm-hmm. anyway, that was my decision right. I mean, with this On girl. some level... I think on some levels, you know, your story is a very common story as well. You know, a person who who needs protection, a person who is responsible to care for people in her family, right? Uh, it, it's like it's it's all of us, and 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 we all depend on one another, and we're all responsible for one another, and it's the degree of a powerlessness that can take over. You know, it can just sneak up on us if we don't, um, if if we're neglectful of that. Speaking of powerlessness, I was thinking when you were talking about um, your experience uh, being separated and, you know, the four of us, uh, the four of you children being on your own away from your parents, you don't mention it, but I'm just, I was trying to imagine the sense of, of helplessness or powerlessness that you must have felt trying to look after your younger siblings. And, and, and trying to figure out, you know, what was going on um, to, to navigate each day for yourself without the language. And here you are, you know, pouring your energy into empowering other people, into building communities, into making things possible for people, right? So at the risk of being, you know, a typical shrink, is there a link here? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 Leanne, I am sure there's a link. Cause, yeah, yeah, you know, when I think back of my, you know, of, of, of those days, right, all I could remember was just like these bits and pieces of the most um, painful moments. And, and they all seem to connect into how we as a, a, a unit at that time, I mean, four of us, little ones, uh, would survive. And, and I, oh my God, it wasn't even, I, I, I'm sure it wasn't the sense of, it was just, things were just so out of control. I mean, I didn't know that we were going to get into the car and, and be 
separate. I mean, I, and we just had, it was just, so the traumatic part to me was just being so, yeah, I, it's still painful now when I talk about it because I, I don't, it, it just feels very painful. And, uh, and it was the biggest fear for me at the time was how that we were going to all be separated and that we were all going to be, um, you know, not, not taken care of, particularly the little ones. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. It's, it's just that experience made me realize that, that I have to continue to be the caretaker and to really uh, continue to advocate for those who, who were voiceless. Because my sister was certainly voiceless, um, but, you know, all of us, without our language skills, without our parents to advocate for us, we felt voiceless. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's mm-hmm. it. Right now, you help me pick the one word that describes what's motivating me, all the things I've been doing for the past, is trying to give voice to the voiceless, man. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that, you know, when I, um, so as a pediatrician, right, practicing here in Orange County, I've also gone abroad to do many medical missions. Um, you know, I, I think when I say that I've gone more than 100 um, missions, I think a lot of healthcare professionals who have practices here in the U.S. would say, oh, my God, that's crazy. That's a lot, man. That's like, mm-hmm. you know, going to different, like I went to the Philippines after the typhoon. Uh, I've gone to pretty much most of the countries in Asia and, and South America to do a relief work. But the group that I've been absolutely advocating for are the lepers. Lepers mm-hmm. in Asia, lepers in Vietnam, um, and these are truly the people who are voiceless. So I think, I think you've helped me right now, right here today, um, <laughs> to, 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 yeah, to give voice yeah. to what I've been doing, which is I really just wanted to help out and, and give voice to the voice. Oh, is the, alongside with that, you know, I'm struck by your, um, your thing, to, to, <laughs> for lack of a better word, your thing. <laughs> Your, your thing about how, you know, it's almost unacceptable and intolerable to you to watch groups of people be deprived of resources, be deprived of, of, of rights and of resources. And again, I'm thinking about what it must have been like for you, uh, you know, back then as a child and especially watching probably, you know, for example, worrying about your four-year-old sister, you know, with things that she probably needed but you couldn't provide and, and things that she, uh, that she, you know, she wanted to say but couldn't say. And and it's like, it seems like you're driven by, by that. Um, the, the, the need to, to empower, to make things happen, to bring resources to people. You know, and thank God for that. Um, we have, Mike, and we have about just two minutes left, and it's just really, you know, the hour just 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 flew by. Let me ask you one last question. You know, what what do you love about life? <laughs> what is it about for you? How do you enjoy your life? Gosh, Leanne, that's like that's such a difficult question. I don't have a oh, lot of time to, to even What do you enjoy? <laughs> what do you love what most about this business of living? Yes. You know, what I enjoy is is watching others, watching my mom, watching my daughter, watching others um, be who they are, be true to themselves, be, um, and that's what I love. Mm-hmm. And when I don't see their ability to be their truest self, 
be comfortable who in, in, in who they are, that makes me really that that just makes me so upset and so so driven to so I guess what I love is I, I, I love watching people. I love watching people and how they, they deal with each other and how they interact and how they deal with with this world. Yeah. Yeah. That's, well that's my dear as, as honest as I have it. <laughs> well, my dear, for, for myself, I can say that what I love the most about my life, about life, is is to talk to people and to be able to to see people like you be willing, you know, to answer my questions <laughs> and offer me to see people willing off being willing to offer me a little bit of themselves that that really enriches my my life. Also, when I see you next time, we have to enjoy a bowl of pho. All right. So, but for Definitely. now, <laughs> go on to your Sorry. children, to your patients, and um, everyone out there, a lot of love and a lot of laughter and a lot of friendship. I wish you until next week. Bye bye for now. Thank you for tuning to On Living the Trauma and Beauty of Being Human. Please join Dr. Leanne Nguyen again next Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And enjoy being alive.